Now, the subject of the scripture that we just read here in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is King Jesus. Now, the reason why I say that the subject of the scripture is about Jesus is because if you hit the fast-forward button from this point in Isaiah chapter 6 and go 700 years into the future, we come to John chapter 12, verse 41. And there, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John, quoting from this passage that we just read, he tells us that the Lord that we see in Isaiah chapter 6 is Jesus Christ. How amazing is that? That Isaiah the prophet here describes a moment where he sees Jesus. Now the reason why I refer to Jesus as the king is because in the passage that we just read in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, he is called that. He's called the king. And so what we have here in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 7 is a clear vision of King Jesus. Now because the subject of this scripture is King Jesus, that means the subject of this sermon will be King Jesus. And this morning as we spend time in this Amazing passage of scripture. I want us to see Jesus as the divine king. I want us to see him as the supreme king, the exalted king, the holy king, and the saving king. Listen, I want all of us to leave this morning thinking, I have seen King Jesus today. And so here we go. Who is this king that Isaiah the prophet describes here In chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, well, number one, King Jesus is the divine king. King Jesus is the divine king. Look at verse 5. There in verse 5, the prophet says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So we see here that Isaiah describes King Jesus as the Lord of hosts. Now, don't miss this. Lord there is in all caps, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now listen, whenever you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all caps, it appears that way for a specific reason. Because capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is the English translation for Y-H-W-H. Now, some people pronounce Y-H-W-H as Jehovah. Some people pronounce it as Yahweh. But listen, this is God's name. This is the name that he revealed himself with back in Exodus 3.14 when he said, I am who I am. This means that King Jesus is God. King Jesus is God. He was not merely a good man. He was not merely a great prophet. He was not merely a lowercase g God among a whole bunch of other lowercase g God. He is capital letter G God. And listen, this fact is repeated over and over again in the Bible. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, we read concerning Jesus, who being in very nature God. 
In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read concerning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And in 1 John 5, 20, and I love this one, speaking of Jesus, it says, he is the true God and eternal life. So listen, the fact that King Jesus is God, I want you to wrap your mind and your heart around this. It means that King Jesus is the second person of the one triune God. It means that he is eternal and uncreated. He is holy, he is sovereign, and he is supreme. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is everywhere present at the same time. And he is the maker and the sustainer of all things created. And he is worthy of all worship, he is worthy of all obedience, and he is worthy of all devotions. And listen, if this is not the Jesus you embrace, then you have the wrong Jesus. This is King Jesus. He is the divine king. But not only is he the divine king, but he's also the supreme king. He's the supreme king. Now look at verse 1. We read, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And again in verse 5, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I love these words because they tell us about the supremacy of Christ. And we see in these words that King Jesus is supreme over all other kings. In fact, I want you to see in verse 1, there's that word Lord, but it shows up differently. In verse 5, Lord is in all caps. In verse 1, Lord is capital L, but then lowercase o-r-d. And again, it shows up this way for a specific reason, because this is a different Hebrew word. In verse 5, all caps Lord, that's God's name, Yahweh. Here in verse 1, Lord, capital L, then lowercase o-r-d, that's the Hebrew word Adonai. Adonai. And Adonai, it means supreme Lord. It means Lord of all. And this word, Adonai, it stresses the sovereignty of King Jesus as the all ruler. So we learn here that being Adonai, King Jesus is greater than all earthly kings. Now, in view of all the political and social chaos that's in the world today, isn't that good news? This is such good news. The King Jesus is infinitely greater than all the great kings of earth. And this includes pharaohs and Caesars and kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and diplomats and dignitaries and even dictators. He alone is the king of all kings. And the Lord of all lords. And listen, our supreme king, he continues to rule when the kings of earth ceases to rule. For example, we see here in Isaiah 6 that King Jesus is supreme over King Uzziah. 
Now, the nation of Judah had regarded Uzziah as one of her greatest kings. In fact, at the time, King Uzziah had brought the nation of Judah to its greatest days since King David and King Solomon. But listen, as great as Uzziah was, his reign of 50-plus years, it ended It ended with his death in 739 B.C. Now, in contrast to King Uzziah, our king, King Jesus, he continues to live on. And he continues to reign on. And listen, he will live on and reign on forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's why Hebrews 1.8 says, Your throne, O God, speaking to Jesus, is forever and ever. Who is our king? He is the divine king. He is the supreme king. And listen, he is the exalted king. Our King Jesus is the exalted king. Again in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In this vision, Isaiah the prophet sees King Jesus sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now we all know what a throne is, right? A throne is a seat of authority and rule. Now, this throne that Isaiah sees, this is the throne that belongs exclusively to God. It is the seat of God's authority. It is the seat of God's rule. And regarding, concerning this throne, we see the words high and lifted up attached to it. This speaks of exaltation. In fact, the New American Standard translates this as, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. I love that. So this means that King Jesus is highly exalted over all created things. And listen, the throne of King Jesus is highly exalted over all earthly thrones. And so again, in Psalm 103, verse 19, the Bible says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Now listen, having seen his throne, now check out his train. Check out his train. It says the train of his robe filled the temple. His robe. We see King Jesus with the robe. This refers to his kingly robe. In Psalm 104, verse 1, it says, You are clothed with honor and majesty. In Revelation 19, 16, it says, On his robe, at his thigh. So imagine the robe of King Jesus, and that part that covers his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Listen, that is a designer label only King Jesus can wear. And concerning his robe, it says the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's a question. How big is God's house? You know what? I don't know. But I imagine it to be pretty big. And yet we see in this big house that the train of the robe of King Jesus 
carpets God's temple in heaven wall to wall. Wow. Listen, no king on earth has ever carried a train this big. You know what the message is? It's simple and powerful and profound. Listen, no king on earth has more honor and more majesty than King Jesus. Amen? Who is our king? Listen, he's the divine king. He's the supreme king. He's the exalted king. And listen, our King Jesus, he is the holy king. He is the holy king. Now look at verses 2 through 4. We read that above it, talking about the throne of King Jesus, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Seeing this description, we first see the location. This happens in the house. We see in verse 1, it is the temple. And I, I find this really, really interesting. In that we don't find the throne of King Jesus in a palace, because that's a place for politics. We don't find the throne of King Jesus in a corporate office, because that's the place for commerce. Where do we find the throne of King Jesus? In the temple. Because Isaiah 56 verse 7 tells us that God's temple is the house of worship and God's throne is in the house of worship. And Psalm 22 verse 3 says that God is enthroned in the praises of his people. And Isaiah's eyes were open to see into God's heavenly temple. In Psalm 11, verse 4, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. But I don't want you to just see the location. Number two, check out the choir. Look at the choir. In verse 2 we read, above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Verse 3, and one cried to another. So here is this massively big choir made up of these creatures called seraphim. Now seraphim are heavenly spiritual beings, and the word seraphim means Burning ones. Listen, this choir is literally on fire for God. And each seraph covers his face with two wings in humility and reverence before God. Each seraph covers his feet with two wings in dedicated service to God. Each seraph flies with two wings to do the will of God. I love what the Bible commentator Ray Ortland says about the seraphim, listen to this, quote, the seraphim hover in constant motion, ready to do God's will. They are living flames of pure nuclear-powered praise. Isn't that great? Listen, this is the big sound of a large choir. We know it's large because it's made up of a large army of angels. 
Isaiah tells us in verse 5 that he saw the Lord of hosts. Maybe in your Bible it's translated the Lord of heaven's armies. And in Revelation 5.11, John having a similar vision of what Isaiah saw, he tells us in in Revelation 5.11, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. What does that sound like? What does that look like? Thousands and millions of angels. And listen, their sound is so big and so loud that verse 4 tells us the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. Guys, here's the application. The volume in heaven is loud. The volume in heaven is loud. Isaiah 6.3 tells us, and one cried to another. The verb cried means to proclaim loud. Listen, worship in heaven is neither passive nor passionless. The sound of God's angels can be heard and felt. And the praise of God's angels It's this big and it's this loud because King Jesus is that big and that worthy to receive this kind of praise and this kind of worship. So check out the praise. Verse 3, and one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to first look. Look, see, Look at how the seraphim express their praise to God. It says that one cried to another. Guys, listen, the angels are proclaiming God's praise in loud black or back and forth celebration. It says that they're crying out one to another. Try to imagine the scene. There's these angels, and they're formed into a choir, and there are different sections in the choir, and each of those sections has a choir leader, and one angel cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and on the other side of the throne room of God, there's another team of angels that respond, yes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and then another section in the throne room of God, holy, 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 Back and forth, back and forth. The angels are crying out all this. And in the midst of it all is King Jesus. Wow. And guys, listen. This is, this is not manufactured. This act is not manipulated. This is the right response to all that God is and to all that he does. That's why do you understand how tragic it is to see God's redeemed church embrace a boring Jesus. A Jesus who is not big enough to stir up our hearts to say, I'm going to worship you louder than the angels. But not only to look, but listen. Listen. Listen to the praise of God, Seraphim. Listen to the lyrics. They're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Listen, this is chorus with content. 
This is song with substance. This is doxology with theology. This is something more and something bigger than just la, la, la. Listen, this is holy, holy, holy. And the praise of God's angelic choir resonates with the truth of God's holiness. Why? Because King Jesus is the holy king. And I'll tell you, this is truth for us to remember. Oswald Chambers, born in 1834, went to heaven in 1917. He wrote this, quote, There is a danger. There is a danger of forgetting that the Bible reveals not first the love of God, but the intense blazing holiness of God with his love as the center of that holiness. And that's why the lyrics of heaven are holy, 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 because God is holy, holy, holy. And this means that he is infinitely perfect in himself. This means that he is completely unique from all created things. He is completely other than all things not God. And so the Bible speaks of the splendor of God's holiness and the majesty of God's holiness and the incomparability of God's holiness. Listen, when heaven is crying out, holy, 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 that's not just repetition, it's emphasis. God is holy, 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 and each word is boosting the force of the previous one exponentially. It's because the holiness of God distinguishes him absolutely even from the sinless angels. But not only do we hear the words of their praise that God is holy, but we also see that God is glorious. We see God's glory, and when we talk about the glory of God, we are talking about the shining out of what God is. God's glory is the outshining of who he is, and so we see God's glory displayed on earth. Verse 3, the whole earth is full of his glory. We see God's glory displayed in heaven. Verse 4, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Smoke. Now, this smoke appears to be the smoke that's rising from God's burning altar in heaven that we read about in Isaiah 6.6. But listen, this smoke, it means something. It is the smoke of God's glory. In Revelation 15.8, again, John, he had a similar vision to this one that Isaiah had. In Revelation 15.8, John says, the temple was filled with Smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Listen, God's glory covers every square inch of God's temple, God's house. Smoke can get into corners that a Swiffer cannot. There is not one spot in heaven where God's glory is not there. But then check out Isaiah's response to this in verse 5. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What else could Isaiah have said? How 
else could Isaiah have responded? You see, in view of the holy king, Isaiah said of himself, Woe is me, for I am undone. Listen to this, please. A right view of God brings a right view of us. A right view of God brings a right view of us. Archbishop Anthony Bloom, he wrote this, quote, It is not the constant thought of their sins, but the vision of the holiness of God that makes the saints aware of their own sinfulness. And this is evident in Isaiah's response. He sees our holy king, Jesus, and he responds, Woe is me, for I am undone. Now, a lot of us grew up in Christian homes. We've grown up attending church. And there are places in the Bible that have become very familiar to us that over time has lost its punchiness. I think that this is one of those places in the Bible that we could read Isaiah 6 and think, and just read, oh, woe is me, for I'm undone, for I'm a man of unclean lips. And we just move on. Guys, this is a punchy statement. It is a gut-level, knock-the-wind-out-of-you statement. And for us to, to be able to understand what Isaiah is saying here, sometimes we just need to read those familiar passages of the Bible in a different translation. So the English Standard Version has Isaiah crying out, Woe is me, for I am lost! The New American Standard says, woe is me, for I am ruined. And I like the New Living Translation. It says, it's all over, I'm doomed. (laughs) Guys, this is a gut level, knock the wind out of you confession. But listen, this was Isaiah's confession to God. You see, in view of the holy king, Isaiah saw that he was a sinful man. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. And listen, because I am a man of unclean lips. The New Living Translation translates that as, I am a sinful man. And the reason why is because what came out of Isaiah's mouth revealed the condition of his heart. Isn't that what King Jesus told us? In Luke 6.45, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So when Isaiah says that my mouth is filthy, he's confessing my heart is filthy, God. But it wasn't just him. But also in view of the holy king, Isaiah saw that his nation was a sinful people. He said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The same way that a right view of God brings a right view of us. Listen, a right view of God also brings a right view of society and culture. It brings a right view of people and people's lifestyles. So in this moment, we discover that people who have never cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone, are those who have not seen a clean and clear vision of King Jesus, nor have they heard the angel shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Our king, he is a holy king. But listen, we can't end here. There's one more. 
Our King Jesus, he is the divine king. He is the supreme king. He is the exalted king. He is the holy king. And listen, he is the saving king. Amen? He is the saving king. In verses 6 and 7, we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So in verse 5, Isaiah recognized his undone, lost, ruined, and doomed condition. And his conclusion, his confession was, I am a sinful man. Now, in response to this king, King Jesus, we see that how King Jesus, as Isaiah confessed his sin, that King Jesus responded to Isaiah by showing himself to be the saving king. And so I want us to focus in on verses 6 and 7 here. So as you're looking at these verses, find the words life coal. And note it. Maybe your translation says burning coal. That's a great translation. But this is a piece of coal that's hot. There are flames attached to this coal. And in the Bible, fire oftentimes illustrates God's holiness and God's judgment. But notice where this burning coal comes from. It comes from the altar. And again, the altar, it is the place for offering a sacrifice. And the altar in God's house points to a specific altar, the cross of King Jesus. Because it was on that altar that King Jesus died for our sins. He paid the ransom price for our redemption. He satisfied the wrath of God. And he finished the work for our salvation. It was on the altar of the cross that King Jesus became our sin. Think about that. He became all of our lies without being a liar. He became all of our theft without becoming a thief. He became all of our sin without becoming a sinner. He became our sin, and God judged our sins in Christ there at the altar. The burning coal of God's righteous wrath was against sin, and Christ not only took some of it, he took all of it. Your sins, my sins. The full weight of God's Justice and judgment, he drank it down to the very last drop. And it's because that happened at the altar that the moment that Isaiah confessed his sin, we read that one of the seraphim flew to me. An angel flew to Isaiah. Question How fast can an angel fly? I don't know. But I imagine it to be pretty fast. I'm so glad this does not say that when Isaiah confessed his sin that the angel walked to him. It doesn't say that he skipped 
to him or even jogged to him. He flew to him with angel speed. The seraphim flew to Isaiah. And listen, the application, the moment we confess our sins to God, his mercy flies to us. I think that 2 Samuel 12 best illustrates this. After David had committed adultery and then committed murder to hide the adultery, and then for a year he's covering up his sin, and everyone is applauding David as the man after God's own heart, his sin is revealed as Nathan the prophet confronts him, and David's broken. And we read in 2 Samuel 12, 13, that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. Now, as as wonderful as that passage is, we lose something in the translation. In the Hebrew Bible, the tenses that are used The idea of this passage is that when David began to confess his sin, before he even reached the period of his confession, Nathan was already telling him, your sins are forgiven. How fast did mercy fly to David before he even reached the period of his confession? Now we understand what it means that God is ready to pardon. He's ready to forgive. And some of you need to hear that today. You have been living with guilt and shame. And you have closed your heart to God thinking that there is no possible way that God could ever forgive you for what you've done. There are things that you're thinking, if the people sitting next to me would ever find out what I've done, that would be the end of that friendship. And yet, while you're living each day with the burden of guilt and shame, God is saying, I am ready to pardon. Just confess. Just confess it. Let's deal with this. Let mercy fly. Just confess. And each day, oh, God doesn't love me and God will never forgive me. God's, just confess. Just confess. And finally, you hear a message like this today and you're thinking, you know what? Maybe God does want me to confess my sins. Lord, I am so sorry. And before you even reach the period, mercy's already flown to you and landed. And then it beats the period. God wants you to walk out of this place clean and clear before him. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so the announcement came, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. This is the message that God's mercy brings to us. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. That is atonement language. King Jesus was punished for our sins and he died on our place on the cross. And as a result, our iniquities are not just covered, they're taken away. God is not into a remodeling project. He's into new creation. 
He's not trying, he's not here wanting to try to make an old, dirty heart look cleaner or nicer. He wants to give you a new heart. And our sin is purged because our king is a saving king. He saves us from sin. He saves us from eternal punishment in hell. And this is gospel truth. Who is our king? He is the divine king. He is the supreme king. He is the exalted king. He is the holy king and he is the saving king. 